Welcome to Leverage Women Podcast, where we equip, inspire, and connect women in the leadership that God has called them to. Hi, everyone. Krista Penner here, uh, just coming to you from Leverage Women. Today in our podcast, we are going to talk about margins. What are they? How do we actually implement them in our leadership? And so to start, we're just going to define it. The dictionary says that a margin is an edge or a border of something. Some of the words used to describe it are verge or perimeter, periphery, uh, side, limits. All of these words have the undercurrent of an end zone. And in our English language, we think of margin in terms of what is left of our energy, our resources, and our creativity before we fall off the bus. That's kind of what we do. And in leadership, this is a really big deal. I don't know how often you have felt like you can't do it one more day, you want to give up, you're worn out, and you look at this and go, am I the only one feeling like this? Well, for starters, you need to know, uh, no, you're not. This is epidemic among leaders. That's why there's such a deficit of leadership. Nobody wants to actually go into that zone where they could fall off the bus, so to speak. So, you know, when we think about creating more margin for ourselves, we often think about white space, finding rest, pulling back in order to recharge. And so that's exactly what I tried to do earlier this year. I tried to find that white space and that margin. And I went on a sabbatical for about four months. And the whole express purpose of this was to find a time and place to rest and recharge. I did get a puppy which sort of sabotaged the whole thing to some extent, but she's so super cute. I just got over it and we went with it. Well, I really seriously though, I had big plans about what I was going to do and what I was going to learn. And I said things before I went on sabbatical. I said things like, I'm going, I'm anticipating a deep connection with God. He's going to speak to me while I sit on my couch and read my Bible and pray. Well, this was a lofty and somewhat naive goal when you throw a puppy into the mix. And of course, I decided to host about eight dinner parties with 15 to 30 people at each one. So when I was on sabbatical, I, I kind of cooked for four months. So in the end, my sabbatical didn't turn out the way that I'd planned it in my mind. But I came to the end of this season and realized that God had one overarching lesson for me, one that I actually hadn't planned on receiving from him. It was as if I heard him say to me, Krista, you need to learn to be present. You need to be right where you need to be in the moment and live in the moment. Well, I, as part of my sabbatical, I went to Houston, Texas uh, to take a writing class with Margaret Feinberg. Some of you have probably read some of her, her, her work, fabulous writer, communicator, went to this conference, visited with a friend, went to church with her on Sunday heard an amazing message about, you know, don't sit on the park bench, but get up off the bench and do what God's called you to do. And of course, I'm in the middle of a sabbatical and thinking that the bench is a pretty nice place to be. So of course they have an altar call at the end of the service. And I go forward because I'm like, I think I need prayer because somehow I got to get my keister off of this bench. So I go forward for prayer. I meet a fabulous woman I tell her my name. She asks how she can pray for me. And then she looks at me and she says, I can't believe your name's Krista. That's my daughter's name. And then she proceeds to unload her bus on all the things that were happening in her daughter's life. Her daughter was just 
really, really struggling. So in the end, I went forward for prayer and I was able to pray with this woman for her daughter. And the only reason she opened up to me is because I shared a name with her daughter. Well, as I left that interaction, my heart was so full and I thought, okay, God, that's what it looks like to live in the present, to in the moment, just do what you've called me to do and then watch your blessing unfold. You know, I had assumed that while on this sabbatical, I was going to learn to look to, to see what it looked like to live on the perimeter or the margin of the action. And what I heard God telling me was, Krista, it's all action. I am never not at work in and through you. And I realized that I had wrongly placed a margin or a boundary or an edge around what I thought it needed to look like in order for God to use me. You know, in Psalm 90, starting in verse 3, it says, You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. This portion of scripture is pulled from a prayer that was written by one of the greatest leaders documented in the scripture. Moses begins by expressing that God is the dwelling place, present tense, in all generations. He is from everlasting to everlasting. And the significance of this statement is multifaceted. And in our time here today, I want to focus with you on the truth that our dwelling place is not yesterday or tomorrow. And the struggle for leaders is that we often think about our dwelling place in the context of what happened yesterday, what happened in the past, and what is going to happen in the future. How many times have you heard yourself say to another leader or heard another leader talk about their leadership in the context of what they accomplished last year or the promissory note of what they're going to do next week? And what I see in the scripture is a call to now. You see, Moses goes on in verse 12 and he says, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. In the context of this prayer, Moses is saying, God, help us to make the most of our now because in the big picture, there are so few days. I cannot afford to dwell in a place that doesn't exist. And then Jesus brings this Old Testament lesson into his teaching syllabus with his disciples in Matthew chapter 6. He's just unpacked the Lord's Prayer in this passage. The, this is the foundational pillar of our interaction with God. And then he dives into some of the specifics to help us understand the tension that we live in because we toggle between the past and the future. And he says in Matthew 6, starting in verse 25, Therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food? Is the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they are? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? Notice that Jesus addresses this issue in the future tense. He says, don't worry about what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will put on. Jesus is telling his disciples, 
Don't be unsettled, uneasy, or worried about the future because it will not increase your ability to control it. And then Jesus reminds them of what they know to be true about the past. He says, people, 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 look at the birds. I continue to take care of them. You got to know that I'm going to take care of you. So here in this passage of scripture, we see what we currently call prospection psychology. So research shows us that our brains are hardwired to thrive in the present tense because we harness prospection. Prospection is the act of anticipating the future based on what we have learned in the past. And so this beautiful holistic understanding of the connection point between the past and the future allows us to engage now with a supernatural certainty about what is to come based on the supernatural provision that we have seen God give us in the past. And the point that I want to make here and what I want to settle on is this, using the words of Psalm 90, what is happening in your life in this moment is the dwelling place where God is at work. I cannot tell you how many insignificant events and relational issues, sleepless nights and mad scrambles have derailed my ability to be satisfied with his provision now. You see, Moses brings this prayer in Psalm 90 to a close with the request that God satisfy us with his love and give us the capacity to be glad all of our days and establish the work of our hands. He says in this passage, and I'm just going to encapsulate it for you. He says, now satisfy us. Now make us glad. Now show us your work. Now bring your favor upon us. Now establish our work. When you add now to each phrase of this prayer, it brings it right into the present tense. And the mandate here is don't dwell on what happened back then. Don't project what could happen way out there, but lean into what is happening right now. And this is the edge where we live and learn to say, no matter what is happening, God is still on his throne. He is from everlasting to everlasting, and I can live in the present tense because he wins. And the ugly truth that God revealed to me while I was on sabbatical was this. It was as if I tangibly could hear him say to me, Krista, you do what you really love in the present moment. You need to think about that with me now for a minute. You and I, we do what we really love in the present moment. In the end, it's never about what I should have done or what I think I should do. It's always about what I am really doing right now. And what I've learned about margins, about the frayed edges of my life, the borders of my life, what have I learned? I have learned that the edges are a moving target and the edge connects me and prepares me for what's coming next. So this fringe or margin really brings what I love into sharp focus. So the question we have to ask ourselves as leaders is what do we really love? And this is a question that comes up over and over again in the scripture because it is such a big deal for us. So here in Matthew 6, this passage that we're looking at, Jesus digs into this. And while I was sitting in my kitchen looking at my puppy, the Holy Spirit really pushed me to dig into it too. Krista, the question is, what do you, who and, who, and what do you really love? 
and I know the correct answer to this question. I know what it is, theoretically, but I was confronted with the incongruity of it with my reality. When I went on, to, when I went on sabbatical, seeking a better handle on my margins, I came face to face with the mindset that sabotaged the very thing that I was pursuing. You see, finding margin and the boundaries, the joy and the meaning that I want in my life, these are things that actually we all universally seek after. All you need to do is visit the self-help section of Indigo Books to see what a big deal this is for all of us. We know about God's plan for our lives and we verbalize the desire to, for God's plan but we don't always see this translated into our present reality in real time. And even though I knew all of the right answers, it was as if God was bringing along seemingly random, unexplainable circumstances to fray the edges of my life because he was seeking to piece together a different narrative for me. And this brings us back to what we're exploring here, this idea of margins this idea of being present in those margins and what being present in the margins requires is requires an investment of my undivided trust in God's all encompassing provision, even when I don't really get it. And as leaders, we are so tempted to live in the projection of the future with little care and attention on how we're living in the present. Because confronting what I love right now could potentially unravel me and change my perspective. So this causes tension, which I've decided to call panxiety. I made that word up. Don't even try and look it up in the dictionary. It is nowhere to be found. It's my explanation of this thing that I experience of panic rolled up with anxiety. So my definition of it, or what I look at it and decided that it was, is that anxiety messes with my present and your present moment and causes the disconnection between two fundamental questions. And here are the questions I want you to think about with me. Number one, what am I here to do in this moment? That's the first question. What am I here to do in this moment? Question number two, what do I want to do? in this present moment. So question one, what am I here to do in this present moment? Number two, what do I want to do in this present moment? In my now, like in the present, healthy margins are created when I know my mandate, what, I've, what I'm here to do, and it aligns with what I am actually doing. This was groundbreaking for me. I hate to say that I'm 53 years old and I've only just I'm just figuring this out and putting words to this, but creating healthy margins right now in my life happens when I know what I'm called to do and it actually aligns with what I'm doing. So I want you to go with me to a passage of scripture in 1 Kings. We're going to look at 1 Kings chapter 17 and chapter 18. We're not going to like look at specific verses, but I'm going to paint the narrative for you here. And we're going to look at some of the things in this passage. So this is really uh, the story of Elijah, the prophet. And we're going to break these into like act one, act two, and act three. So in act one of Elijah's life, we meet him. And we see that God is telling Elijah that, um, that he has got to do some stuff. 
So he's, he's, he says, Elijah, you need to go and talk to the king and tell him that things are not going well. And so uh, in this passage, at the very beginning, we see Elijah going and talking to King Ahab. And he says to the king, I'm here to tell you that my allegiance is with God. And God has told me that there's going to be a drought in this land for three years. So he, you can imagine this prophet. He, he comes into the presence of the king and he drops this bomb. There's going to be a drought and it's because you are not doing what God has called you to do. So he drops this bomb, causes a ton of chaos. So we see that, you know, right off the bat, Elijah's got some moxie. He's a courageous leader. He's leaning into the mandate that God's given him. This was a really big moment for Elijah. He's described here as Elijah the Tishbite. And I know what you're thinking. That's a cool name, Tishbite. How cool is that? Well, I looked it up because I wanted to know if it was really cool or if it was just sort of ordinary, like Penner. My last name is Penner. It's sort of ordinary. My kids actually looked up the meaning of Penner, and apparently it means hobo. So I'm sort of like a destitute person because of my last name. Who knows? But here we've got Elijah the Tishbite. And Tishba was an area in Gilead. And so the word actually means hill of testimony. And I'm sure Elijah was thinking that this was not the testimony that he'd bargained for. I'm pretty sure he was thinking, I would like to give my personal testimony to King Ahab, and then we could just break into small groups for prayer. But instead, God calls him to drop this bomb of all this doom and gloom. And although it was not an immediate threat, like it wasn't like a bomb was going to be dropped out of the sky that moment, it was as unpopular as you could get because this bomb threatened everyone. It threatened their livelihoods. This was an agricultural society. No rain meant no food, no welfare for the people. So the conclusion of Act 1 was really this. No rain and no Elijah. Both had exited stage left because Elijah dropped this bomb and then God sent him on his way. And the big idea that I want you to see here is that in the mandates and the margins of your life, they are God-directed. Whether you think you're in control or not, God is truly in control of what is happening. They are God-directed. And the line between what you know you are to do and the margin where you live can be a little bit blurry. That's what we see here. Sometimes God has you as a leader show up, do something, make a proclamation, call the truth call truth and then bow out and what i want you to think about is there are seasons of ministry for you it's the first thing we see with elijah's life but then act two opens up and the scene location is this little brook called the brook cherith so god told elijah go and hide yourself at this brook and this was not honolulu this was a location east of the jordan river very close to where elijah grew up in Gilead, the Hill of Testimony, it's located in the same area as this brook. And this is significant in a way that it's away from the hub of activity and back to the place of his roots. All of the other significant locations that we encounter in this story, they happen west of the Jordan River. So what I want you to note here is that Elijah is taken completely out of the action. And you might be thinking, oh, that's so nice. He gets some quiet time. But I want you to think about this in the context of you as a leader. You know, as a leader, we're we're kind of drawn like a magnet to the hub of activity that's, that's happening. And I think that as a leader, if God, when God calls you out, oftentimes we have this idea like, God, are you kidding me? 
You sent me to shake things up and now it looks like I ran away. So what happens here uh, when he gets to this brook? We got to look at this. It says here in the passage that God provides food and water for him. And that is it. It's as if God sequestered him away and left him there with just what he needed to survive. And it doesn't really appear that he thrived. He actually saw his sustenance dwindle as the water of the brook dried up. And it was in this God-imposed bleak sequestering that he waited until he hears from God again. So Elijah's marginalization was not really about being on the margin, but rather it was the place where God showed him incredible provision that was going to in turn inform how he would survive the next phase of his call. And that call did come. This time he was to travel to the seaport of Zarephath. This takes him all the way past the northernmost point of Israel and into a place called Sidon. And I, I, I know that doesn't really mean much to us now, but Elijah must have been thinking, Sidon, are you kidding me? This is where Jezebel is from. And she is Ahab's wife and she's the one that's threatened to kill him. So he's walking right into her her homeland where all of her rallies are. So he's probably thinking somebody's going to see me and report back to Jezebel that I'm there. But he goes, he goes. And all he knows, all God has told him is that there's going to be a widow who's going to house and feed him. And uh, he was just supposed to go on that. And I'm sure he thought, well, that's probably going to be an improvement over the gig with the ravens, so I might as well go. And remember, he's without resources. So he just picks up and he leaves that dried up brook and he travels. He walks over 60 kilometers. And as I was writing this out and was looking at the measurements and figuring it out, he walked about 10 hours to get to where this widow lived. And I decided that the bright side of this would have been that he probably didn't need an umbrella. Remember, there's a famine because of a drought. So I thought that was a little bit of a bright side. And he meets the woman. He meets this widow when he gets there. And she uh, graciously obliges when he asks for something to eat and drink. And even when she has only enough food to last for one more meal for her and her son, she still gives him what he needs. Elijah has just come from a place of living on the brink of disaster. And this woman says to him, well, I'm going to give you something to eat. It's the last of what I have. I'm out here picking up sticks. I'm going to make a little fire. I'm going to make a little patty with the oil and the flour that I have. My son and I were going to eat it. And then we were going to just sit in a corner and die. But when she tells him all this, he's not fazed by this at all. He just says, go ahead and make the last of your barley cakes. And he says, you're going to have enough. Trust me. From what everything I've been through, this is nothing. This is assurance that he, the assurance that he delivers this message with could only be found in what he's experienced in the past in prospection. Remember what prospection is? It's understanding and remembering the future in order to ascertain what's going to happen in the, or what happened in the past in order to see what's going to happen in the future. So Elijah anticipated the future based on what he learned in the past, and it changed how he reacted in the moment. And so as the story unfolds, God emboldened him further by giving him the supernatural ability to bring the widow's son back to life. And this bold step of faith profoundly changed the widow's perspective. And she says in 1 Kings 17, 24, she says, now I know that you are a man of God and the word of the Lord in your mouth 
is truth. This was a powerful statement. And what I've seen, she's saying, what I've seen has changed how I live in the moment and it's changed how I will now anticipate the future. So the big idea I want you to get here is that enacting bold trust in the present based on past experience proves the truth of what you say you believe about the future. I'm going to say that again. Enacting bold trust in the present based on past experience proves the truth of what you say you believe about the future. It's all connected. Leaders become bolder in the margins. That's the big idea that I want you to remember here. Then we go to act three. This is like the most exciting act. And the location is Mount Carmel. And it says in this passage, after many days, so this innocuous phrase is packed with meaning. It's used in the Hebrew language to describe an undefined period of time. And in our passage, we know that the time frame of this account is three years from the proclamation of drought to the torrential rains that began after the standoff at Mount Carmel. So Elijah found, finds himself in this standoff with everyone. He's so beyond his capacity to lead. And I'm sure if he had just stopped and thought about it, even the Raven restaurant, at Brook Cherith would have looked like a really good idea compared to where he finds himself. And the drama of this, of this scene is beyond anything we see in the movies. The water, the blood, the fire were more than any one leader could ever tackle. And yet Elijah shines like never before. He sets the agenda, he directs the strategy, he calls for holy intervention, and he courageously cleans up the whole mess at the end. The prophets of Baal are no more. The people see the one true God at work. And then it rains. Now, I've just given you a snapshot synopsis of what happened there. We know that that standoff had so many layers to it and so many dimensions to it. But the big idea that I want you to remember from it is this. That the margins of your life embolden you as a leader to embrace your mandate with God-sized capacity. The margins of your life, in those margins, you are emboldened to embrace your mandate with God-sized capacity. And in this account in 1 Kings, after many days is more than a two-week hiatus on the periphery. It was a long period of time that saw Elijah waiting for God to speak. This leader would have felt very much like he had been marginalized in the middle of his moment. He knew about the prophets that had come before him. He was aware of the cycle of sin, retribution, and repentance that defined Israel's his history. And it was as if, and if I was in his shoes, I would have been asking, like, God, so how long is many days? You know, when we're talking about margins, self-inflicted or God-inflicted, we do not naturally like the uncertainty of a nebulous time frame. And in this passage, what I see is this. A maximized life might actually look on the outside like a marginalized life. In this account, we see Elijah having moments of grandeur and days and days and days of obscurity. And the culmination of his low moments is seen when after all that's happened, he sits under a broom tree and begs God to kill him. 
And this is really where I want to land with you today. You know, we look at margins, we look at them as limits, we look at them as the edge, we look at them as the periphery. And, and here we see Elijah under a broom tree going, God, just kill me, kill me now. And I want to ask you as a leader, what does your broom tree moment look like? What does that moment look like when after you've had an amazing event of ministry, you've preached your heart out, you've led well, uh, what does it look like? Does your broom tree look like comparison? Is it just a bad memory that you have that all you do is remember the negative parts and forget the positive parts? Is it insecurity? Is it bone weary tiredness? Is it a lack of trust? Is it an addiction to admiration that's not getting fed? You know, the greatest lie that Satan whispers in the ear of a leader is, you are not good enough. Look at you. Nobody even sees you by this brook in this widow's house under this broom tree. And this is a true lie because the truth is we are not good enough. The caveat to the statement is, is this, we are not good enough apart from God being at work in us. And that's the piece that we so often forget. We aren't good enough. But the last part of that statement is, we are not good enough without God at work within us. So what do I know about sitting in my kitchen for four months? God is present and working and shaping and wooing and loving and disciplining and pushing me to be more, to do more, to experience more in the margins of my life. Every margin, every edge is connected to the next part of your journey, of to my journey. And the margin that we grapple with, that, that is the, the margin that we grapple with is this ragged edge of our obedience and God's provision. And I say ragged because oftentimes that heart of obedience, we struggle to get there. It's hard to be obedient when we don't have the, all the answers. We don't know what God has in store for us. When we feel like we've been left out, that we're sitting by a brook, that we're sequestered away in a widow's home or under a broom tree. But that ragged edge of our obedience, meeting God's provision is where God grows us up as leaders. You see, you and I were not made up of one continuous landscape but rather we are all kinds of fringe pieced together to make a beautiful design that is as unique as Elijah the Tishbite. You know, you recall his protege, Elisha. He was the prophet God called after Elijah. And you remember that all he wanted from Elijah was his mantle, was his cloak. And the big idea that I leave you with today is this. Your influence as a leader is crafted in the margins that are sewn together to create a mantle that you get to pass on to the next leader. I leave you with this verse from 1 Kings 18, verse 37. It says in there, Elijah says, Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Your mandate as a leader is to show somebody who Jesus is by embracing the fringe, the margin, the places that God sends you that don't seem glamorous, learning what you need to learn, 
getting the courage that you need for the next part of the call, the journey that God has for you.